Well, good evening and welcome to New Hope Church. We're so happy that you are here tonight. Uh, tonight, we're actually starting a brand new mini series called yeah. I Was Wondering. Yep. Now, this is such a treat because how many times have we come to church and we listen to the message and it's awesome, but we still have some questions, especially as the more we grow, the more we read the Bible, some questions may pop up as you're reading your Bible or doing your devotions or even after a service, but you never had the opportunity to ask someone, like, what does it mean when? Or maybe you had an experience here in church and you was like, I wonder why they say things this way, you know, and so now you have a chance to say, I was wondering, and then you ask your questions. And a lot of you have responded with your questions, and thank you for those of you who have responded. And so now we have Pastor Sheldon here, and we are going to ask him your questions. Now, today is the, tonight is the first of this yes. series. So we'll go three, week, three weeks, uh, to this week, next week, and then Pastor Ben is going to finish up with a lot of the teenage questions. So go get them, Pastor Ben. You, you'll have fun on that. Uh, but also maybe even some parenting questions that you may have because he's our youth pastor. But along with tonight, uh, the questions that we're talking about or the questions that were asked, what we're doing is we're trying to bring in the best uh, answer for the context of the question because as we're going through these questions, there were so many rabbit trails that you could go on to to kind of bring in a, a, a foundation to the answer. So we're going to try and keep it as short as possible for the context of what the question is, and hopefully we can answer your question quickly. For some of you, when you ask someone a question, you want the answer, yes or no. We're called men. Women, you may have a more elaborate answer, and that's fine. Uh, sometimes men need a more elaborate answer, uh, but tonight we're going to try and keep it as short as possible. And we have a lot of questions, and so yes. if we don't get to your question that you had submitted to me, um, then we will try and get to it next week, Wednesday. So if we don't get it tonight, we'll try and get it next week, Wednesday. Okay, shall we start? Yes. Okay. Question number one, and this is in no particular order. This is just as we, as we got him in. Mm -hmm. It says, will someone who once accepted Jesus into their life, but then has since fallen away and doesn't believe anymore, still go to heaven? Okay, so the short answer is if you don't believe in Jesus, no. Because here, I'll give you a, uh, some, sometimes I have to draw something. So here is heaven, here is us, and God gave us Jesus to die for our sins so that through him we can get to heaven. Now, we're in time, we're on this earth, this is our planet earth, I put Hawaii because sometimes people miss out on Hawaii, so we're here on this earth, we're in what we call time. God is out of time, he's eternal. So when someone makes a decision, it's an eternal decision. Only God actually knows if they're going to heaven. Sometimes we base somebody going to heaven on how well they behave, but it's really their faith in God. So the short answer is, if they don't believe in Jesus, no. But if they said that accept, they accepted him, will they still go to heaven and they since fallen away? Here's, a, here's the doctrinal answer as well as the scriptural side of it. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 8, verses 4 through 5 uh, Jeremiah, who's a prophet, he says, You shall say to them, Thus saith the Lord, Do men fall and not get up again? Does one turn away and not repent? Why then has this people, Jerusalem, turned away in continual apostasy? Now, remember that word. I'll explain it. They hold fast to deceit. They refuse to return. So there's a rejection that is happening. 
with God's love that has been given to us. Hosea chapter 14 verse 4 says, I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely for my anger has turned away from them. God's anger could turn away from us because Jesus died for our sins. So God's anger with sin was satisfied through the death of Christ. God took out his anger, not on us, but on his one and only son. So that word apostasy is in the Hebrew word in the Old Testament meant a turning away, that you turned away from. Or we use the word backsliding. In the New Testament, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3, it says that to let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, this, uh, revealed, the son of destruction. So the Greek apostasy means a falling away or a defection. Kind of like when you defect from one country to the next, it's you're your defecting from one's country in cause or, or cause, you're defecting from one country or cause in favor of an opposing one. So you're not just going to, from one country to the next, you're actually going to another place that is in opposition. So when God gave us heaven, he created hell for Satan and his angels. So that could be considered the opposite of heaven. So whenever there's an apostasy or a falling away from or a defection, that's a choice that someone makes to reject God's love that was freely given. That's just their choice. So I cannot say if someone is going to heaven or not based on someone saying, but that person received Jesus when they were in their 20s, but they don't look like they're following God in their 50s. Or that person says, I did receive Christ when I was younger, but I rejected him now. So the turning against God, which is this apostasy, is it's evidenced by abandonment and repudiation, which is rejection of a proposal or an idea. So this was God's idea to bring mankind back to him or of former beliefs. So the term generally refers to a deliberate renouncing of the faith as one sincere believer rather than a state of ignorance or mistaken knowledge. So apostasy is distinguished, distinguished from heresy, which is denial of a part of faith, and from transfer of allegiance from one religious body to another. And also it is possible to deny the faith as Peter did. Remember, he denied Christ but then he came back to Christ and Jesus restored him. And he asked him plain and simple, Peter, do you love me? Why? Because love never fails. So if we go based on decision, and it's for us to say someone did or didn't go to heaven, we're basing it on a mankind's perspective and our humanity of someone's decision rather than God's love for them and his grace over them and their decision to follow him. Can they reject God and will God respect that? Well, God will respect your decision to reject them just as much as he respects your decision to accept him. So if you want to reject God, that's up to you. And that word apostasy was, it originally meant a complete rebellion. That was a rebellious act. So the Jews were described as rebels under, if you're reading your devotions, we're reading about King Artaxerxes and the rebellion that they had towards their king. So it's that kind of rebellion that God is looking at. In Hebrews chapter 6, I'll read this to us. And if you have your, your Bible, you can turn there too. Hebrews chapter 6. And in the book of Hebrews, 
went too far. Uh, in the book of Hebrews chapter 6, when God, when, uh, when God gives us this meaning, which is the whole chapter, it helps us to understand what Jesus came to bring. So it says, therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God. Instruction about cleansing rites, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment, and God permitting, we will do so. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting Him to public disgrace. Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed receives the blessings of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are convinced of better things in your case. So now he's speaking to the believers. The things that have to do with salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realized. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. So God has promised us eternal life. And he's saying there are some that will set the example for that. Others will fall away. Don't follow their lead. So it, it comes back to a choice. You can reject God, absolutely, and that's your choice. God will never force you to be in a place you don't want to be. He's not going to force you because he's not that kind of God. Wow. I know. That's, okay. That's kind of a short, long answer. Well, <laughs> well, that was a good answer because I thought, because I at first when I saw the question, I'm so glad that's why you're the pastor, because when I first saw that, I thought That's of, the word of God. So right. let's make that clear too. It's not me. It's the word of God. And I just studied on what the question was. Because so. for a lot of us, um, like for myself, I accepted him when I was like 16 and then hit a rocky, rocky, rocky road after that. And, but I never stopped believing in God per se, but I stopped following his ways. And so I thought, well, you know, if I still believed in him, does that, you know, because to say somebody doesn't believe in him and has fallen away, how do we know what that person believes? We don't know what's in their heart. Only God knows that, right? But then you clarified it with scripture, which is why it's important for us to be in our word. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. That was good. That was the first question. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Hope you brought some snacks. Okay. Our next question is, as mentioned in Daniel 9.27, did all sacrifices stop immediately? Did they, Christ followers, still continue to sacrifice, to save face, or to fit in? Okay, so Daniel chapter 9, verse 27 says, He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven... He will put an end to sacrifice and offering, and at the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed 
is poured out on him. So that's the context of it. And so Daniel 9.27 is actually the prophetic word of the destruction of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was God's city. That's where they built the temple. So the Roman general Titus actually was the one who uh, destroyed the temple in 70 AD. This is after Jesus went to the cross and rose from the grave. So in 70 AD, he took down uh, the temple, burned it to the ground, and that was actually uh, a prophetic word that Jesus spoke about. He even told his disciples when they said, look at this temple, look at the buildings. And Jesus said, you know, this, there's going to come a day where no rock is going to be left standing. Everything will be broken down. But he said about his temple, you, 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 build, you break down this temple, you destroy this temple, and I will raise it up in three days. So he gave his word about the temple and uh, for the sacrifices when this prof- prophecy was being given by Daniel. And he talks about that seven, and in the middle of the seven, he's talking about the week, the days. So in the middle of that week, that's what happened to the temple. It was in that middle of the week. It was that prophetic word that Daniel was giving. And if you read the book of Daniel, there's a lot of prophecy in the book of Daniel that you really got to study on. And if you're not careful, if you're not reading the Bible in its entirety, you get lost in it, and then you just go straight to the story, Daniel in the lion's den, because we can understand that. But everything else, there's so much vision that Daniel had. So, but the abomination of desolation is when Titus burned the temple to the ground, putting an end to sacrifice because that's where the Jews would sacrifice the animals for the remission of sin and for the cleansing. But they also brought sacrifices, uh, offerings like grain and wine uh, that were not necessarily a sin offering, but it was a thanksgiving offering. It was an offering that meant I'm making a vow. So there were other kinds of offerings that were given. And when Jesus speaks in Matthew 24, 15, he says, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. So when it came to the offerings, and the reason why I'm saying that is because you need to understand the context of Daniel and the, uh, the prophetic word, the Jews rejected Jesus as the Messiah. That's why they were saying crucify him because they didn't believe that he was the Messiah. So the animal sacrifices that were done in obedience to the Old Testament were still being done, but then they were stopped when the, when the temple was torn down because that's where the sacrifices were made. So even till this day, you don't, no one does sacrifices, especially the Jews, because the temple has been broken down. And you need to be there to offer the sacrifice. So because the temple is torn down, no, there is not sacrifices that are happening. Uh, But for the Christian community, if they're asking, the question was, did all sacrifices stop immediately? Did they, Christ followers, still continue to sacrifice to save face or to fit in? After Jesus died and rose from the grave, there were still sacrifices. In fact, they had the Passover. You had to sacrifice the lamb. But Jesus was the final, right, the Lamb of God. And so when Jesus brought in that he was the final sacrifice, those who understood that began to understand that they don't need to make animal sacrifices because Jesus paid the final price for it. The book of Hebrews talks about that and and shows the sacrificial system 
Hebrews 13 says when he said a new covenant, which is what Jesus said at the Last Supper, that's why we do communion, because it's a new covenant, no longer sacrificial animals, but it's a new covenant written in his blood once and for all. That's the new covenant. He made that final sacrifice for our sins, so we don't have to make sacrifices, as well as the animal sacrifice was not enough to kill off sin. It wasn't enough to abolish sin and to appease God's anger because you needed a perfect sacrifice, a human sacrifice, because humans were the ones who sinned. You needed a perfect person to die so that sin would be abolished. All the sacrificial animals was a foreshadowing of Jesus coming to this earth and offering himself as a sacrifice so that when he died on the cross and he said, it is finished, what he was saying is no more. It is paid in full. So Jesus makes sure that we don't need to sacrifice anymore. Paul the apostle actually was teaching this in Second Colossians, and it was Paul who specifically pointed to Christ as the Passover lamb who made that sacrifice for us. So that's why we keep the, we call it the Lord's Supper or communion, because we need to remember what he did for us, that he made that final sacrifice. And so we celebrate what Jesus did, that he made that sacrifice for us and for the sin. And there's so much more in this prophetic word, but uh, yes, they did stop, but not immediately. And I don't know if they did, if they stopped to save face or if they continue to save face or to fit in. There's no scriptures that necessarily said they made sacrifices to fit in. And plus, you, you couldn't just uh, kill the lamb. The priest did that. So you, you didn't go up there. You offered the sacrifice, but you weren't the one who was going through that. It was the priests that did that. Uh, hopefully that answers the question. Did they, Christ followers, still continue to sacrifice to save? Yeah. Uh, the only time you see a saved face is when Peter was hanging out with the Gentiles, talking story with them, and then the Jews showed up, and then he kind of like, oh, I shouldn't be hanging around with them. And then he goes and hangs out with the Jews, and then Paul, the apostle, he corrects Peter and rebukes him, and he says, you, you can't play two sides. So that's the closest that I've seen to someone, a Jew, trying to fit in, and that was Peter. Yeah, all kinds of stuff happened with Peter, so he was... I, I relate to Peter a lot. I think, I think it's necessary to have a Peter in the, in the disciples. Peter, he's that. so yeah. human. Yeah, yes. he's so real. Yeah. yeah, but they did continue to go to the temple. If you read in the book of Acts, in fact, Acts chapter 3, verse 1, jo Peter and John went to the temple one afternoon to take part in the 3 o'clock prayer service. So they still went to the temple, even though Jesus had already died and um, rose from the grave and then ascended into heaven. Uh, and they went to the temple often. In fact, when Peter preached his first sermon, 3,000 people were saved. Where did the 3,000 people come from? Where they were around the temple. So they still did that. And yeah. Okay. Next? Yes. Ready? Okay. In Daniel eleven thirty nine. Daniel. <laughs> 36 through 39, actually. <laughs> all, all these gods real. Who is this foreign god? Okay, so it's actually the question who is, yeah. I'll read the scripture. Okay. It says in the book of Daniel, he will attack the mightiest fortresses with the help of a foreign god and will greatly honor those who acknowledge him. He will make them rulers over many people and will distribute the land at a price. 
So short answer, there is no other God besides the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God whom we serve, the God of Israel. So mankind, we make up our own God. That's, that's what we do. But it only exists because we make up our own gods. We have Greek mythology. We have, uh, even in our own culture, uh, you have Roman gods. So mankind makes gods. Yeah, mankind make gods. Psalm 135, 15 through 18 says that the idols of the nations are silver and gold. Silver and gold. The work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. So in other words, we make gods out of, these, out of silver and gold, and then we worship it. Deuteronomy 4.28 says, there, it, there in a foreign land you will worship idols made from wood and stone, gods that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. But from there you will search again for the Lord your God. And if you search for him with all your heart and soul, you will find him. So the question, who is this foreign God that they're talking about? That word God in this scripture in uh, Daniel is the word Eloah, which means false God or God-like, not necessarily God or a God because there is no other God, or it means mighty one. It also comes from a word that means mighty men, men of rank, mighty heroes, and it comes from the word that means a mighty tree. In other words, when the book of Daniel was saying he will attack the mightiest fortresses with the help of a foreign God, it's saying like this guy was amazing. He's like a fortress, like a mighty tree. But the word God is used because the way they venerate these types of people. So they worship them in that way. But it came back down to the, the definition of a false God. Isaiah 44, verses 10 through 20. This is kind of a long one, but I thought, boy, this is the best scripture for how gods are produced when it's an idol or when they carve something. And we even have gods today that might not necessarily be carved but it comes through technology because we worship it. It says, now I'm not talking about your phone, okay? So don't start burning your phone. And it's just sometimes we can turn things into gods. We worship things. But who, it says, who but a fool would make his own God, an idol that cannot help him one bit. All who worship idols will be disgraced along with all these craftsmen, mere humans, who claim they can make a God. They may all stand together, but they will stand in terror and shame. The blacksmith stands at his forge to make a sharp tool. Now listen to this. This is what happens when we create a god, a statue. The, the blacksmith makes a sharp tool, pounding and shaping it with all his might. His work makes him hungry and weak. It makes him thirsty and faint. Then the wood carver measures a block of wood and draws a pattern on it. He works with a chisel and plane and carves it into a human figure. He gives it human beauty and puts it in a little shrine. He cuts down cedars. He selects the cypress and the oak. He plants the pine in the forest to be nourished by the rain. Then he uses part of the wood to make a fire. With it, he warms himself and bakes his bread. Then, yes, it's true. He takes the rest of it and makes himself a god to worship. It sounds like comical. Uh, that part wasn't in. I just said that. It sounds comical. Uh, he makes an idol and bows down in front of it. He burns part of the tree to roast the meat and to keep himself warm. He says, ah, that fire feels good. Then he takes what's left and makes his God. 
a carved idol. He falls down in front of it, worshiping it and praying to it. Rescue me, he says. You are my God. Such stupidity and ignorance. Their eyes are closed. They cannot see. Their minds are shut and they cannot think. The person who made the idol never stops to reflect. Why? It's just a block of wood. I burned half of it for heat and used it to bake my bread and roast my meat. How can the rest of it be a God? Should I bow down to worship a piece of wood? The poor, deluded fool feeds on ashes. He trusts something that can't help him at all. He, yet he cannot bring himself to ask, is this idol that I'm holding in my hand a lie? Just think about it. We could have just read that. Okay, we can go on to the next question. Okay, wow. Hopefully that answers it. Unless yeah. you had a question. No. Okay. Uh, no. Okay. Um, unborn children, children killed in wars, does Christ save them? This is probably the most beautiful of scriptures. Psalm Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16. It says, For you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth, your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. And in your book, all, they all were written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there was none of them. God knew us before we were born. He loved us before we were born. That's why he created us. Ephesians 1, 4 says, Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. So, for those who had an unborn child or killed in wars, does Christ save them, even babies that were aborted? Yes, because God's love shall never separate us from who he is unless we make the decision to do so. The ones that are killed in wars, there's an accountability of understanding as well as those who are young children and they pass away. Deuteronomy 139 says, Moreover, your little ones who said would become a prey and your sons who this day have no knowledge of good or evil shall enter there and I will give it to them and they shall possess it. So think of it this way. As a good father, your children may not understand if you're saying, let's go to Disneyland. Your adult child might deny it and say, I don't want to go. But your two-year-old, your one-year-old, they won't even understand to the context. They might understand a little bit and, just, and they might just say, yes, I want to go. But they're not deciding based on a decision of choice. They're deciding based on, I want to see Mickey Mouse kind of thing. So the, the accountability of understanding, there's an age of accountability that they come to to make those kinds of decisions. So we don't know what age they would be at to accept God or deny God, but God does. So he knows the decision or he knows at what age they don't understand yet. And Jesus modeled it very well. I think he gave us a glimpse when the disciples said, no, 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 the children, put, put the children away. The Messiah is busy. And Jesus said, hey, let the little children come to me. In other words, he was saying, they don't understand they don't have the power and strength to choose me, but I have the power and strength to choose them. So, 
See, that Ooh. was going to be my sub-question was, well, how old is that age? And you just answered that yeah, too. Yeah, he knows. He knows. <laughs> he knows us from beginning to end. So I, that's why I'm so thankful for who he is and his, um, and his love. Okay, our next question is, how do, we know, how do we know if my Down syndrome has Christ in his heart, that he is saved, that he will go to heaven? Whew. Um, that's the accountability of understanding. I think the amazing thing about God is when he created us, he created us with body and soul. Your body never gets saved. The, the, the condition of a human person physically never gets saved. It's our soul that does. That's what God is after. He's not after this flesh. Our, our flesh is going to decay, but our soul lives forever. That's the genius of God. He created our spirit for eternity. So when someone is at a place of they, don't, they, they may not understand, God takes care of that because they don't understand. That's the innocence. So when God and his love brings a child or even an adult that may have, a, may have Down syndrome, we may not know what they're going through. They may be able to explain it and say, no, I have Christ in my heart. Only God would know. And if they say, I do have Christ in my heart, Believe it or not, they may understand that because it may very well be their spirit speaking, not necessarily their flesh. So uh, Daniel Strickland actually on a, on a Wednesday night spoke in the context of renewing our heart with Christ. And she talked about we need to be saved again and again and again or, or uh, born again and again and again. And the question also was, uh, is it okay for my son to, to be baptized again and again and again? But the context was to repent, to remember that day of salvation, to, to once again renew your heart for God every single day, again and again and again. As Psalm 51.10 tells us, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Because it's our spirit that God carries into eternity it's not on our own power it's by his spirit hopefully i answered the question i know there was a kind of a three-part question yeah it was okay about being baptized again and again and again also okay. it okay. that's okay for the son to be baptized again and again yeah if if the if your if your son uh has down syndrome and maybe they don't understand the context of it and they want to absolutely Absolutely, because it's, it's the heart of God that they're drawn to, not a routine. And even if you explain it to them and they say, I'm okay, and then they want to get baptized again, it's not a sin in that context to get baptized again and again. Now, I would question someone who thinks baptism is washing away their sins that they just did. You can repent of your sins. It's, repentance means to change your mind and then head towards God. It's that, it's that 180 degree from what you were doing, and then you turn, and then you head towards God. That's what repentance is. So baptism doesn't do that. It signifies the dying of our sins, a dying, uh, 
Christ dying for our sins and then coming back to life. And it's the burial and then the resurrection. So we come back up a new person as well as a public declaration of letting everybody else know that we believe in Jesus. So no harm if they get baptized over and over. Okay, thank you. Okay, another question is, for Luke 12, verses 51 through 53, and it says, I do not understand. Jesus says he did not come to bring peace but division. Okay, so it continues and it says, why, what's going on here? Okay, so the scripture is, do you think I came to bring peace on earth? And this is Jesus speaking. He says, no, I tell you, but division. From now on, there will be five in one family divided against each other. Three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. You get the context. So he's saying there's going to be division. So Jesus is speaking in the context of greed and selfishness. If you read the beginning of Luke, he starts off talking about greed and uh, he talks about seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, then everything else will be added. So, and, and then he gives a, a, a a story of being ready for him. So it's in that kind of context. So Jesus is the de deciding factor of choice. That's what he's saying. There's a deciding factor of choice when it comes to eternal decisions. So you're either going to choose him or not. That's the division. It's Christ, but you got to pick him or not. So what started with one, it's divided into two because we need to make that choice. So when you choose him, not everyone when you choose him, not everyone will agree with you because you choose to follow him. So you're divided. Now listen very carefully, okay? This, I, I'm, I'm thinking this is the context of the question. When you believe in Jesus and someone else may not, you're divided in belief, not relationship. That wasn't Christ's intention to be divided in relationship, he was, he was saying, you're going to have to choose one belief or another. Either you're going to believe me or not. But you as the stronger one, you love this one, that way they see the light and they can find their way home. So don't divide the relationship just because you don't agree. Even believers will have division because they don't agree. Especially in our day and age, I mean, if you're a Facebook scroller person and you're on Facebook and you see all of these debates... Like, you unfriend people, and your real friends you just have a hard time with, even in your own family. Mom is going to say one thing, dad is going to say another thing, child is going to say another thing, grandpa is going to say another thing, and everyone's divided. So you're going to have that because Jesus is the deciding factor. And so because Jesus is the prince of peace, now here's the other side to it. Because he's the prince of peace, he brings peace with him. He just brings peace with him. And for those who don't want peace, there is an automatic division, not on his part, but people who choose division. They just choose not to. So that word division means to be divided into opposing parts, to be at variance, in dissension, which means disagreement that leads to discord. So there's no harmony anymore in the family. 1 Corinthians 12.25 gives us a different definition of that word division. So Luke gives us that definition of division, that Jesus came to bring that kind of division. you got to make that choice. 1 Corinthians 12, 25 addresses a different division within us as believers. It says, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. So that division means to cleave, cleave asunder, to rend, to divide by rending, which means to tear. 
Remember when uh, Jesus died on the cross? The veil at the temple was rend in two. It was torn in two. So that word cleave, or even to rend, is a violent division. It's not a choice of I'm being divided. It's now a, a ripping, a tearing away. And it's a cleave, which comes from a word that means to split apart as with an axe. I mean, when you cut wood, you don't go to the wood and go, oh, you don't do that. You slam that thing, and then you split it in half. There's, there's a, a, a division that is violent, and it's more with malice. So there's a difference between the division that Jesus said, I came to bring, which you've got to make a decision, than when it happens in the body of Christ, that there is division among each other. It's like violent now. It's like, boy, I can't stand that other Christian. That's your, that's your believing brother or sister. If you have a hard time with them here, you're going to spend eternity with them. God might put you together next door to each other. So might as well get along now as well as be that example for the world to see that the body of Christ can get along because Christ is in the middle of it, not our own opinions or our own personalities. It should be Jesus that brings that together. So Hebrews 4.12 also gives us another word, that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of both soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So even that word, that word division, is another word that means a distribution of various kinds. It's a separation. It means one of the constituents parts or constituent parts of a whole. So when the word of God divides, it's, it's more of a surgery that we're still whole in him, but he's, he's now dividing certain things. So there are certain definitions for the word division. Really? Whew. We might be with that person for eternity. You know, forever is a long time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Think about if, that. Even now. if you're married to them now, Kat, just saying. My husband says that, you know, forever and ever we're going to be together. <laughs> I'm like, that's pretty long. <laughs> yeah, but you're not going to be married in heaven. <laughs> yeah, I read that. Well, that's too another the... question, right? Some people have it. Yeah, you, okay. anyway. We can add that to the list of all these questions. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Luke 14, 27 says, and whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Jesus speaks, the question is, Jesus speaks of carry their cross before the crucifixion. Was that the customary saying or did it refer to punishment by crucifixion? They're confused about that. Okay, so the cross, uh, we know the cross and crucifixion because of Christ. But that wasn't what crucifixion, that's not where it started. It actually started uh, with Romans. They would, that was their execution. But they got it from the Phoenicians who executed uh, through crucifixion, also with a stake. That word is interchangeable, the cross or the stake. And the Greeks in how they would punish the most uh, heinous criminals, the worst criminals. They saved execution for them. So, in other words, when Jesus was saying that, he, said, he was saying, you're going to have to carry some tough burdens. So we will either be, if you think about, just picture Jesus carrying the cross to Golgotha, Skull Hill, up Calvary. When he was carrying the cross, he struggled with it. He fell. Simon from Cyrene was told to pick up the cross and then carry it for Christ. So there's a struggle with it. And Jesus physically struggled carrying the cross. So we're going to be slowed down, and we've got to remember what the cross represented. When he died on the cross, it represented dying for our sins as well as paying in full our sins. So because of that context, our sins, carrying our cross, 
we will either be slowed down by our flaws, our sins, our insecurities and failures, or we will carry them as we follow Jesus. So unless you pick up your cross and follow him, you cannot be his disciple because we still sin while we follow Jesus. We still do. There's a letter that um, Augustine, St. Augustine uh, wrote. He's a bishop and a writer on philosophical, uh, theological, ecclesiological topics uh, from 354 through 430, uh, the year, 354 through 430. And so he writes this letter to Latus, who is a Catholic layman from Africa who had entered a monastery but left his father after uh, his father had died because he wanted to care for the family and then be there with his family, uh, with his mom and family. So Augustine tells Latus of his sorrow, of the things that he's going to go through, and his first steps in following Christ. So he writes this letter, and he says this, and I thought this was so brilliant. He says to Latus, turn rather to these teachings, and he's talking about the teachings of, of Christ. My very dear friend, he says, take up your cross and follow the Lord. For when I noticed that you were being slowed down in your divine purpose by your preoccupation with domestic cares, in other words, worldly affairs, I felt that you were being carried and dragged along by your cross rather than that you were carrying it. What else does the cross mean than the, mor the mortality of this flesh? This is our very own cross, which the Lord commands us to carry, that we may be as well armed as possible in following him. We suffer momentarily until death is swallowed up in victory. Then this cross itself will be crucified. The cross will be nailed to the fear of God. We would hardly be able to carry it now if it forever resisted us free with free and unfettered limbs. There is no other way for you to follow the Lord except by carrying it. But how can you follow him if you are not his? And I thought that's the only way we can carry our cross is that we follow him. Does that make sense? That does make sense. Okay. That was pretty heavy. It is because the cross, I mean, yeah, the cross physically was heavy, but it was a... <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm not trying to make a pun or something, but that was sounding like it one. Did, but it did. It, the death on the cross, it wasn't, a, it wasn't a, we can watch movies, but we'll never be able to understand how much pain Christ went through on the cross because of the way they crucified them. Mm -hmm. it, was, it was not just the pain of the nails going through their hands and feet, but it was the suffocation and the, the torture of it. So that, yeah, so. Okay, so do you think we have time for uh, yeah, one maybe, last? Maybe, maybe this one? one or because um, yeah. it's topical. Sure. Okay. okay. <laughs> yeah. How do we get someone to come and serve, and how do we get them to stay? I would give you two words, relationship and patience. <laughs> Just build relationship with people, because the goal is not to have them serve. The goal is to love them. Serving is a byproduct of our love for God. But if we don't love people, then they won't even be around us. 
as believers, we're supposed to represent the Lord's love into this world. So you just love them and be patient with people. And if you're wondering, and it also might be, uh, mean systematically, like how do we get someone to serve? Uh, we have what we call next steps, and you can get that card at our information center, and it shows you how to get involved in a ministry. Uh, how do we get them to stay? You love and care for them. And sometimes people are just busy. I mean, it, it's the world we live in, right? Sometimes we work two or three jobs. We have children, grandchildren, so sometimes it gets busy. So I'd, I'd rather you build relationship with people because then you will know them. And when you know them, instead of them serving here, God might be calling you to serve them there. And that might work out better. I like that. And it's good because we have our SALT conference yes, coming up. which is our serving and learning together. So, and, and our SALT conference, uh, we talk about principles that can help with everyday life. So it's not about serving here at the church. Uh, that may be included, but it's more about what God is doing in you as a person. So you may not be serving, but you'll still learn the principles behind what it means to serve and learn together. Uh, and it's going to be super good because we have all the pastors on the Big Island. It's actually our divisional conference for the Big Island. So all the various churches will come together and then our different pastors here on the Big Island uh, from Kona side, Waikoloa, Waimea, Volcano. Well, the whole island. So around the entire island, uh, they're all coming here. Yeah, and so each pastor is going to be speaking. We call it uh, Salt Talks, so it's about 12 minutes. And then they'll give a, a principle, and then we'll have Q&A. Kind of like this, you can write a question on it. We thought the, the best way to do this is sometimes you go to, to, you'll go to a conference, and then you receive whatever is given. But what we want is for you to receive what God is laying on your heart. So with the Q&A, you can ask any question that may not even pertain to what we just talked about. You may ask a question that has to do with how to recover from, uh, from some type of uh, words, uh, damaging words that was given to you when you're younger, or how do you recover from uh, an uh, abusive relationship, or how do you get out of debt, things like that. You can ask those questions, and we'll give some time for that too at okay. the conference. Okay. And if you ask this question, or maybe you thought of this question, how do you get someone to come and serve, and how do you get them to stay, you'll learn a lot at this conference because yeah. you're, you as a person will also be filled and you'll learn things. I mean, for us as staff, we learn something every time, every time. And we yeah. glean off of each other. We, get, we trade ideas with the um, other members of the other churches as well. You know, does this work for you guys? What do you guys do in this situation? And it's a really good way to, to really get to know people as well. So. Yeah, and if you are thinking of serving, it gives you a snapshot picture of why we do what we do. Because more than the serving side of it, there's a reason why we do what we do. And the end result is really for people to come to know Christ as Lord and Savior. That's why we do what we do. And that's why we name it SALT, Serving and Learning Together. So like you said, yeah. it's all about relationships. And, and it, oh, it starts Friday morning. Yes. So it goes all day Friday to the evening. And we have breaks in between. Then we have, we have breakfast and then lunch and then dinner. And... Friday night is our worship night. So if you don't come to the conference, that's okay. You can still attend the Friday night. That's free. The conference, there's a, a registration fee. But if you just want to attend the worship night, you can do that. And if you want to purchase dinner, you can do that also. But if you're in the conference and you registered for the conference, then everything is included. And then Saturday morning, same thing, breakfast. And then we'll have the conference and we'll end at noon. Around noon. Are Around we having noon. lunch? Yes. After? Okay. So we're having lunch after. 
I hope that was correct. Otherwise, we just decided, yes, we're going to yeah, have no, lunch. No, we will have lunch. We can go down I'm to Nori's. We can go Nori's and have um, <laughs> honey It's toast. about relationship. Honey, honey toast, toast yes. yes. That's like, that oh, that's good. good. Okay, focus. So, um, I am. Look, my leg's shaking. <laughs> Hurry up. So the salt the conference, by the way, you, you still have time to register for that. Although it's this coming Friday or next Friday, next Friday on the 20th, um, you still can come and, and register at our information center. So please tell you know, your friends and family about it. Um, you can eat, and if you cannot come on Friday because it's too late to request off, then you can come on Saturday. So just ask one of us about the details of SALT. And like he was talking about, my next steps to go backwards, my next steps is actually available on the tables um, by the door. So you can get those there as well if you're wanting to know what your next steps are or to give it to somebody even. Okay? Yes. Are we good? Yes, we oh, are. Oh, and worship night starts at 6.30 p.m. On that Friday night. On that Friday night. Yes. So in case you just want to come for that, it starts at 6.30 p.m. Okay? Yeah? Did we answer? Well, we didn't. What? Yeah, we still have more questions, but we'll, yeah, we'll yeah, try yeah, and get, we'll get to it. them next week. Yes. Okay. Can we thank Kat for helping tonight? Wonderful. <laughs> and we're going to ask the worship team to come out, and then we're going to... I'll close in prayer also, so would you bow your heads for a moment as the worship team comes out. Lord, we're so grateful that we have your word. Your, your word is a guide unto our feet. It's a lamp to un, unto our feet. It shows us the way. It, it gives us direction. And so as we learn together and as we ask questions as we serve together and as we glean from your word, help us to become the people you see us to be. The amazing thing about you, Lord, is that you're full of grace. And you came with grace, but you also came with truth. And they go hand in hand, but you brought grace first. And because of your grace, we're able to turn to you. We get to love one another. We get to be patient with each other. We get to see each other grow in you and mature in you. And so we're all at different places in life. But the one thing that brings us together is you, your spirit. So we thank you for that. We appreciate you. Wash us, Lord. Renew us as we jump into the rivers that wash us clean, which is your spirit. We're so grateful for who you are. I pray your blessing over each and every one of us as we leave here tonight. May this night be one of those nights that has changed our hearts to become more and more like you. In Jesus' name we pray, and we all said together, amen, amen.